Yahweh demonstrates himself to be a savior by restoring the land from drought and famine to food, by restoring Naomi from sin to repentance, and by converting Ruth from idolatry to salvation. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. When you think of the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, what characteristics best describe God's actions? Does your knowledge of God align with what Scripture reveals about Him? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of a series titled Ruth. Today, Tom begins to examine verses 6 through 22, which is all about God as rescuer and as savior. He demonstrates his power to save in three specific ways, restoring the land from famine to food, restoring Naomi from sin to repentance, and converting Ruth from idolatry to salvation. It's a remarkable story of the repentance and spiritual restoration of one of God's own children and the spiritual conversion of one of God's enemies. The question is, which category do you find yourself in today? Keep that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. Just to remind you, sort of to orient you again of where we are, according to chapter 1, verse 1, the events described here in the book of Ruth occurred during the days of the judges. The period that began with the death of Joshua in about 1390 B.C. and ended with the coronation of Saul as Israel's first king in 1051 B.C. A period of about 340 years and by far the darkest period of Israel's history. Now the last time that I I studied with you, Ruth, together, we we listed nine separate purposes that lay behind the writing of this book. I'm not going to take you through all nine of those again. Instead, I think out of those nine, we can say that there are three primary spiritual purposes. You know, we could talk about the fact that it, it gives the lineage of David. It, it shows us where the Messiah will come from, as recorded in Matthew's genealogy. We noted all of those things last time. But I, I think three primary spiritual purposes. First of all, Ruth provides a personal portrait of the cycle of sin and deliverance that occurred again and again during the period of the judges. The cycle was one of disobedience followed by God's judgment, followed by repentance, and followed by God's deliverance. Again and again, that national cycle is repeated in the book of Judges. But here, in the book of Ruth, we see that same cycle recorded in the life of one Hebrew family. Secondly, we can say that Ruth shows that God's plan of redemption includes more than the Jews. It even includes Gentiles when they repent and believe in Yahweh. In fact, look at chapter 2 and verse 12, one of certainly the key verses in the book. Boaz says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings, Ruth, you have come to seek refuge. 
That's a beautiful picture of her conversion, which, Lord willing, we'll look at together next Sunday night. The story of Ruth is a story of grace and redemption, even for pagan Gentiles, for idolatrous worshipers who were willing to sacrifice their own children to their gods. Thirdly, Ruth puts on display the amazing work of God's providence. This is a celebration of God's providence. Leon Morris writes, the implication throughout this book is that God is watching over his people and that he brings to pass what is good. The book is a book about God. He rules over all and he brings blessing to those who trust him. Or as John MacArthur puts it, Ruth describes God's sovereign and providential care of seemingly unimportant people at apparently insignificant times, which later proved to be monumentally crucial to accomplishing God's will. God's providence, His sovereignty is overall, His providence works out His sovereignty in individual lives and the lives of families as well as nations. Now, last time, we examined just the first five verses of chapter 1. And we called this, this introduction, really, to the book, The Far Country. Because in a very real sense, these five verses are to this book and to the life of this family what the departure of the prodigal son for the far country was in the parable that Jesus told. We began by looking at the desperate circumstances of the nation. Verse 1 says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Those were difficult times. Politically, the time of the judges was a time of great confusion. There was no central government in Israel. Instead, there were a series of local deliverers that God raised up, judges they're called, more rulers and, and leaders than those who deliberated on cases, and because there was no central authority, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Politically, these were desperate times. Religiously, the times of the judges was a time of idolatry. If you want to read about that, read the end of the book of Judges. Touched on it last time. It's, it's amazing, the idolatry that characterized Israel at this time. Even the grandson of Moses set up idolatrous worship in Dan, which lasted for 600 years. Morally, it was a time of great sin and immorality depicted in the, the death, the rape and death of the concubine in the book of Judges. Amazing times, dark, desperate times. But that's not all of it. Notice verse 1 says, It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Because of Israel's rebellion, their idolatry, God brought upon them not only the man-made disasters of oppression from foreign armies, as you read about again and again in the book of Judges, but he also brought upon them natural disasters, the natural disaster of famine, as well. God had withheld the rains that are so important to the land of Israel and to its agriculture, apparently for several years. And so our story begins in the time of the judges when the people had sinned against God 
and were experiencing the heavy hand of His judgment upon them. We, we move from there to the disastrous choice of one family. The disastrous choice of one family. We noted last time, notice verse 1, in the middle of those days, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. One man, rather than choosing to humble himself in repentance and to trust God to restore the rain and therefore the crops, decided instead to uproot his family from the land of God, the land God had given him and his ancestors from and from his neighbors and his extended family. And of all things, amazingly, he decided to move to Moab. We talked last time about the amazing choice that was for a man who'd grown up in Israel. We're introduced to this man and his family in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means, my God is king. Obviously, he had parents who were devoted to the worship of the true God. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. These are sick and pining. (laughs) Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrathites of Bethlehem means they didn't just live in Bethlehem. Their family was a historic part of Bethlehem. They were a prominent family, an aristocratic family, and obviously a family with a rich spiritual heritage of of devotion to God. Elimelech's parents had named him, my God is king. But they decided to leave their relatives, leave their town, leave Israel, and move to idolatrous Moab. Verse 2 says, now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Uh, This decision showed Elimelech's heart. As Daniel Block writes in his excellent commentary on Ruth, instead of recognizing the famine to be punishment for the nation's sin and repenting of their spiritual infidelity, they left their people and their land for the unclean land of Moab. Elimelech designed his own solution. Now, in response to that disastrous choice, unfortunately, as we noted last time, came the divine consequences of rebellion. Verses 3 through 5 recorded, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. In those three verses, there is unimaginable tragedy for this family. Think about what happened to them physically and spiritually over a 10-year period. A famine struck their own country. They made a sinful decision as a family to move away from everything familiar to a pagan land of idol worship. Then came the unexpected death of Naomi's young husband, followed by the marriage of her boys to women who worshiped the false god Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Then the barrenness of her daughters-in-law. Both of her sons were married for 10 years without any children. Then came the premature death of those boys, still in the prime of life, but they died suddenly, unexpectedly. The divine consequences of rebellion. Now that brings us tonight to the new section we want to consider. That's the far country 
Tonight we come to the journey home. Let's read it together. Ruth chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. If we were to read the rest of this chapter and the next section, which Lord willing we'll look at next Sunday night, you would see that in this entire section, two Hebrew words that don't appear once in verses 1 to 5 recur repeatedly in verses 6 through 22. Those two words are, first of all, the word return, return. And of course, many of those times we're, we're describing the return to Israel or we have Naomi urging her daughters-in-law to return to Moab. But it's not a coincidence that the very same word that's translated return is a common Old Testament word for repentance. Naomi's physical return to the land of Israel from the far country of Moab is a picture of her spiritual return to the Lord or her repentance. The other word that occurs repeatedly in verses 6 to 22 is God's personal name, Yahweh. You'll notice in the English Bibles that we have, whenever you come across the word LORD in all caps, or occasionally the word GOD in all caps, it is showing us that it is, in fact, a translation of God's personal name, pronounced Yahweh. When God says it, it's I am. When we say it, Yahweh, it means He is. This is God's personal name. It is the God who depends on no one or nothing outside of Himself. He simply is. He is the one who is. It's also God's covenant name, the name by which he commits himself to his people. So from those two key words, we can construct a statement of the section's theme. This is how I would describe it. Verses 6 to 22 really point to this reality. Yahweh demonstrates himself to be a savior by restoring the land from drought and famine to food by restoring Naomi from sin to repentance, and by converting Ruth from idolatry to salvation. You see, this section is about God 
and about God as a rescuer, as a savior. It's a remarkable story of the repentance and spiritual restoration of one of God's own and the spiritual conversion of one of God's enemies. I just want to examine the spiritual restoration of God's child. The spiritual restoration of God's child. All the evidence points to the fact that Naomi was a genuine believer, a genuine worshiper of God. But she, along with her husband, had gone to the far country. We don't know whether it was a Limelech's decision. We're not told. We don't know if it was Naomi's decision. We don't know if they decided together. All we know is that they went to the far country together, and after a Limelech's death, Naomi still decided of her own free will to stay knowing that would mean that her sons would marry idolatrous women, what was forbidden in God's law. And so clearly, she had strayed from God's ways and God's path. And this passage dictates and spells out for us the path of her spiritual restoration. First of all, it began with a deliberate decision. A deliberate decision. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. The Hebrew word arose is often used of beginning a journey, not merely getting up. And the Hebrew grammar here points out that, that the initiative behind this decision was that of Naomi and Naomi alone. Her daughters-in-law will accompany her, but the driving force here is Naomi. Finally, after 10 hard years of heartache, Naomi has had enough. Now she will do what she should have done almost 10 years before, after the death of her husband Elimelech. She will leave idolatrous Moab, now without her husband and without her sons, and she'll return home. In the verses that follow, she'll make constant reference to Yahweh, Israel's God. That underscores that her resolve to physically return to Israel was accompanied by a spiritual return to Israel's God as well. The path home begins with a deliberate decision. It always does. I will arise. There's also a sincere motive. Notice verse 6. Here's why she decided to return. For she had heard in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. We aren't told exactly how she heard this news. Perhaps it was from travelers passing through or perhaps from some kind of rudimentary mail system carried on by travelers. But notice exactly what it was she heard. She heard that the Lord had visited his people. This is a very familiar Old Testament expression. The picture is that of a vassal king who leaves his own city and goes out to visit his subjects. And his response to his subjects is based on what he finds when he visits. Leon Morris puts it this way, when God visits, everything depends on the state of affairs he finds. If he finds that his people are living in a state of rebellion, he brings punishment. If he finds they are living in a state of submission to him, then he brings blessing and reward. When God visits, he decides exactly what's going on, and he responds 
appropriately. That's why in the Old Testament, sometimes when God visits his people, he comes in judgment and in punishment. For example, look at Exodus. Go back to Exodus 32. Exodus 32 and verse 34. After the golden calf incident, God says to Moses, but go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I, notice the marginal note, in the day when I visit, I will visit them, or literally I will visit their sin upon them. Here we have God visiting and finding sin and saying, I'm going to punish that sin. I'm going to deal with that sin. On other occasions, when God visits, he brings blessing. He brings relief and deliverance. Go back to chapter 4 of Exodus. Chapter 4, verse 31. When Moses comes to tell the people of, of Israel who were in Egypt about God's coming deliverance, verse 31 says, So the people believed, and when they heard that Yahweh... You see, it's translated, was concerned, but if you'll notice the marginal note, literally the Hebrew reads, they heard that the Lord had visited the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. Then they bowed low and worshiped. They knew that God had come to visit and he'd found them in a terrible situation and he would respond for their deliverance. The Lord had visited his people Naomi had heard this, and in this case, it was for blessing and the end of the famine. Now, we aren't told here whether the people had repented and had therefore experienced God's deliverance, as was often the case in the time of the judges, or if was true, as was true in the case of Samson, the people had not repented, but God had simply responded to them in utter and complete grace in spite of their failure to repent and relieved their suffering. We don't know which was true, but regardless, God had visited his people in blessing. Specifically, notice Ruth's writer adds, in giving them food, literally in giving them bread. <laughs> in Hebrew, there's an interesting play on words with the word for Bethlehem which means the house of bread. God was restocking the house of bread with bread. Don't miss the point here, by the way, that it's God who brings the rain and provides food. We have a hard time keeping that in mind in our culture because everything seems so distant. I like what Robert Hubbard writes he says, modern urbanites living far from farmers' fields would do well to remember that ultimately God, not the grocer, stocks their shelves. In this verse, we have the first hint of hope in this dark scene. Now that brings us to a third part of the journey home. Not only was there a deliberate decision to return, not only was there a sincere motive based on hearing that God had visited his people, but there was along with it in the heart of Naomi a genuine love for others. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, Ruth. Tom will have part four for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. 
And Tom, isn't it remarkable that when those who are in desperate situations call out to God, that he actually responds? It certainly is, and that's because God, by his very nature, is a savior, a rescuer. He delights to rescue. I love the fact that in this story of Ruth, particularly in the story of Naomi, we see God graciously restoring to himself one of his own who had strayed into sin, and through that, bringing Ruth to salvation. But we also see God as a Savior reaching into the middle of a pagan land and snatching to himself a woman named Ruth as a demonstration of his amazing grace. My prayer today is that if you find yourself in either of those situations, you would cry out to God and experience his rescue. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.